This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The guest speaker is featured on this message. Thank you for having me here this morning. It is great to be here with you. Um, we're going to be continuing our sermon series uh, with the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible, should be a Bible in front of you, in the chair in front of you, if you will, grab that. If you don't have your own Bible, please feel free to take that with you. Reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, and this, I can promise, will be the best part of the sermon today. This is God's holy word. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word right now, I ask that you would speak through me. God, there are so many here in our church that could, um, could, could preach your word, that could teach faithfully. And so it's not my um, or good works or my gifting or anything special about me. It is your spirit at work within me this morning that's going to bring your word to us. And so I ask as we look at your word, the Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts to the truth of your word that we would not be like the fool who hears your word and then leaves forgetting what he has heard, but God, we would be wise and we would take your word and that we would apply it through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would live out what we hear this morning. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a uh, packed passage. There's so much in this passage. We really could spend three Sundays uh, studying this passage. Um, don't worry, this isn't going to be like a two-hour message. Uh, we're only, we only have one Sunday. We only have a few minutes to study this passage, so I'm going to summarize it. Um, but there, I'm assuming there are going to be questions. There's going to be things that um, I don't cover today. And so if you have questions, the number that's on the screen is for the podcast Grace Church Conversations. So if you have questions, feel free to text those questions in um, and, uh, and we'll try our best to, uh, to answer those questions and cover those in the podcast. But today's passage, I think, is probably the most important Christian ethic that you'll find in the Bible. If you need a command that summarizes all that we are supposed to do in regards to others, this is it. In the next few minutes, I'm going to attempt to show that Jesus explains that the true children of God do not just love their neighbors, but love all people with a sacrificial, death-defying love. I'm going to do this by looking at three main points in today's text. We're going to look at the tradition of the Jews, the translation that Jesus gives, 
and the transformation of the Spirit. Let's look at the tradition of the Jews. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Look what Jesus says, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, you've heard this said. So Craig's mentioned before uh, in this sermon series that when Jesus says this, he isn't saying um, that this is something you can find in the Old Testament. He's saying this is something that you've heard taught. And see, the, the Jewish people then uh, would have had a book called the Mishnah, which was a collection of the orally taught traditions and interpretations of the Old Testament law. If you look in the Old Testament, or the whole Bible for that matter, you won't find this command, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The closest thing we get to this command is Leviticus 19, verse 18. You don't have to turn there if you don't want, I've got it. Um, Leviticus 19, 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. You see the changes the Pharisees made from the original command to the interpretation. They have taken out something and they have added something. And in so doing have decreased the scale of the love commanded and have reduced the scope. The original command was to love your neighbor as yourself. Notice this isn't in the teaching that got passed down. To love someone as yourself is a high degree of love. We're constantly aware of our own needs. We're constantly aware of our own desires. We reorient our schedules to accommodate what we want to do. We make sacrifices. We work hard to take care of ourselves. Many of you in the next couple days are going to eat specific things or not eat specific things so that you can look or feel the certain way that you want to feel or look. Many of you spent the better part of an hour this morning getting ready to look the way that you look to be here at church. You all look great, by the way. So here, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, have lowered the standard of loving your neighbor. It's enough in their minds if you love your neighbor at all, let alone to love him or her as yourself. If they've changed the scale of the love, they've also changed the scope of the love. See, it was a raging debate at that time, and really from the time the original command was given to determine who your neighbor was. This was a debate that was going on. The command was clear. God's people were to love their neighbors as themselves. There were many commands given to the treatment of your neighbor, so determining who your neighbor is was very important. There's a clue in Luke 10, 25 to 29, that this was an ongoing discussion and debate even through Jesus' time. Look what it says in Luke 10, 25 and 29. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
See, the original command in Leviticus 19 talks about loving your neighbor. The high love as yourself love was directed at neighbor. So it was really important to figure out who your neighbor is. Let's look again at Leviticus 19 and see if we get any clues. Leviticus 19, 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. Verses 1 through 18 of Leviticus 19 talk about loving your neighbor. And here and in other passages you see it says against the sons of your own people. So somebody who just kind of cursorily read that passage could easily say, your neighbor was who? Your own people. Well, who was God talking to? He's talking to the Jewish people who he just brought out of Egypt and he's giving them commands. And so it would be easy to understand this and your neighbors as the Jewish people, as your fellow Jew. But if you keep reading, in Leviticus 19, you get to verses 33 and 34. And how many erroneous teachings, how many vain debates would be stopped if people would just keep reading? If the Pharisees would have kept reading, they would have seen verse 33 and 34. It says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But you didn't know that was in the Old Testament, did you? But what about enemies? Does anyone have enemies here today? Anyone who's not like you? It was actually an accepted practice. So this wasn't from the Old Testament. This was their practice. But it was actually an accepted practice to let an enemy who had fallen into a pit or a well remain without helping them. You could literally watch your enemy drown and feel like you were pleasing God. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. We just looked at part of that. The parable has so much power because it would not have been unusual for a priest or a Levite to pass on the other side of the road. The Pharisees' answer was based on the overall and, I believe, incorrect view of God's dealing with Israel's enemies, which was hatred. The Pharisees, in an attempt to serve God, thought that what God really wanted was for the Jewish people to love those who were like them and to hate those who were not. In an attempt to please God, they have robbed the original command of its potency by reducing the scale of the love from as yourself to just love and have reduced neighbor to be anyone who's not your enemy. Well, if that's what the tradition of the Jews was, let's take a look at the translation that Jesus gives. Let's look back at verse 44, Matthew 5. He says, but I say to you. So we can't, we can't overlook the significance of this phrase. We've seen it all through the Sermon on the Mount, and it bears repeating. This would have been shocking. This would have been scandalous. Jesus isn't saying, you've heard it said, but I want to correct what you've heard with what the Old Testament says. He doesn't say, you've heard it said, but it's written which would have been enough, it would have been convicting, it would have directed them back to the original command, but he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. 
He's boldly putting his authority on the same level as God. Here's yet another example of how we cannot just look at Jesus as a good moral teacher. Jesus didn't, uh, or the people who say Jesus didn't claim to be God. No one ever would have said, but I say to you. That was only God's place. Well, what does he say? It's almost as shocking. Love your enemies. Is this a new teaching? Many people then would have thought so. Many people would have thought this was a new teaching. There are many today who look at the Old Testament as one set of teachings and who look at the New Testament as a new teachings of Jesus. There are even some Christians who don't read their Old Testament thinking it's not relevant for us today. Was Jesus bringing a new teaching? Remember the context of Jesus' teaching. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Jesus has opened his teaching by saying, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is not bringing a new teaching. But wait a minute. Doesn't the Old Testament teach that God hates his enemies? Isn't the Old Testament filled with examples of God telling his people to wipe out their enemies? What about the imprecatory Psalms of David? Well, that's where Craig gets to answer at the podcast. <laughs> and that's what I meant by saying that this really could have multiple messages. Um, you really could spend a whole message explaining this and looking at the Old Testament. Um, but I want to give a couple examples and basically give you the, the answer, I think, is, is no. It's not a new teaching. Um, and I'm planning on giving some examples. So remember the previous passage. So if we look just at Matthew 5. Craig, a few weeks ago, just, just taught on this passage of retaliation. And remember, he said that the command for retaliation was in regards to personal relationships. And the people had incorrectly applied what was a judicial command of an eye for an eye. And they had applied it to personal relationship. It had become a personal relationship ethic. Well, this is similar. The people have incorrectly applied a national judicial practice of God's dealing with his enemies to their dealings with personal enemies. Jesus is showing that this was never the appropriate application. We also have passages like Exodus 23, 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden... You shall refrain from leaving it with him. You shall rescue it with him. We can't ignore our Old Testament. Look at, look at who God reveals himself to be even in the Old Testament. Jesus isn't bringing a new teaching. He is translating the old original command. He's bringing this command back to mean what it originally meant. Jesus is the coolest, the, the greatest retro ever. This is the most significant throwback. But what examples does Jesus give here? Well, let's look back at the passage. It says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, You want to demonstrate, you want to prove, you want to show that you are sons of the Father. You want to show that you belong to God, that you act 
the way that God acts? You want to demonstrate that you are living the way that God calls you to live and by implication are pleasing to God? This, Jesus says, is the fruit. It's not the way to be a child of God. This is how the children of God behave. Well, what evidence does he give? Jesus is making the case that this is how the children of God act because this is how God himself acts. Look around you, he says, for he makes his son, his son, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. It was a common understanding that the more like God one lived, the more holy and acceptable to God you would be. God had called his people to holiness because he is holy. And I think the Pharisees thought that God hated his enemies and loved the Jews, so they sought to live that way. And Jesus comes to show them that they were dead wrong. The way God is, the way he has always and will always be, is that he loves his enemies. God doesn't send life and blessing, sun and rain, to only those who are just and good. He sends rain and sun to both. He is loving to both those who deserve it and those who don't. Jesus knows the truth that these people have only possibly started to understand, that not only does God give common grace to everyone, not only does he send life and blessing indiscriminately to all, he has, in Jesus, sent the greatest gift of all. God does not just tolerate his enemies, he loves them to the greatest extent that love can go. God the Father sent Jesus the Son to ultimately die in the place of not those who live up to his expectations, not those who say the right things, not those who are pleasing to God, but we see that God, while we were his enemies, Ephesians 2, while we were his enemies, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, sent Jesus. Jesus says you don't even have the faintest idea of who God is if you think he hates his enemies. He loves his enemies. What about you today? We're halfway through the message right now, maybe a little bit more. And I want to stop and ask, where, where are you? Are you aware of God's love for you in Christ? Are you trusting in your good living to make you accepted by God? The truth is, and we see it all over the Bible, the truth is because of our sin, we are enemies of God. Apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. You, today, if you're not in Christ, are an enemy of God's. But God has made a way for you to not be an enemy. There's only one way, and it's not going to this church. It's not your good works. It's not disassociation with those bad people. It is only through faith and trust in the finished work of Christ as your substitute. 
But if you haven't put your faith and your trust in Christ today, I would, I would urge you, I would plead with you to do that today. Not so you can be part of this club. Not so you can then be better than other people and look down at them. So that you can move from being an enemy of God to being a child of God. To being from under the just wrath of God to being under the love, the never-ending, never-stopping, always-and-forever love of God. So what about you? Have you put your faith and your trust in Christ? And if you have, how, how can we sing those songs that we sang this morning without, being, uh, without coming to tears, without being brought to tears, singing about the great love with which God has loved us? May we not take for granted that love that he has given us. Well, Jesus moves from looking at how God is. So this is how he is. God is loving to his enemies. And Jesus moves to appealing to their logic and their emotion. Look what he says. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And if you greet those who greet you, what more are you doing than others? In essence, Jesus is saying, you've been living your whole life doing strange practices and having stern restrictions, watching what you eat, where you walk, what you touch, all in the hope of a reward from God. But you're only loving those who love you. What reward is there in that, he says? Should God give you a gold star for that? Then here comes the insult. He says, don't even the tax collectors do that? Don't the Gentiles do that? Ouch. You think God owes you something, he says? You think you're really pleasing to God? Those people who have sold out their own people and are working for the Romans, stealing your money to get wealthy, those are the people you're living like. You think you're pleasing to God, he says? You think you are, a, you are the, his distinct chosen people? When you love those who love you, you're not doing anything more than what the Gentiles, the non-believers, are doing. In his book that we have in the Resource Center, titled The Sermon on the Mount, The Character of a Disciple, Daniel Doriani quotes Friedrich Buchner who says, The love of equals is a human thing. A friend for a friend. A brother for a brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. The world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail. To rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, of the black for the white. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then... There is love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love. It conquers the world. Jesus is saying, you want to be set apart? You want to know that you're different, that you really are a child of God? It is way more than you're currently doing. 
To be a child of God is evidenced by loving indiscriminately everyone. And this brings us to our third and final point. The transformation of the Spirit. Well, if you look at the passage, there's only one verse left. And I really think this one verse could have an entire sermon. So that's where I get the three sermons from. I think you could spend an entire Sunday unpacking and explaining verse 48. Let's read it. It says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I've studied this verse for a long time. Um, I've looked at a number of commentaries. Um, and there seem to be uh, a few major views. And the one I was going to say originally goes like this. This, uh, this word perfect means, like we read it when we first read it, that it means perfect in every way. And so what Jesus is doing is he's, he's kind of setting up the readers and setting up the hearers to uh, like this you know, need for perfection, which we can't, we can't get from ourselves, and so we need to look to Jesus. And so really what Jesus is doing is he's pointing people to himself. Now, I want to explain, I do believe that. I don't believe we can be perfect in and of ourselves, and I do believe the only way we can reach perfection is in the finished work of Christ. I do believe in the imputed righteousness of Jesus on our behalf, so get that out there. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. So what I'm, I'm doing is I'm going with a different view, which a lot of the commentaries support, so this isn't just me, um, but you can study it on your own, um, is, is that Jesus here is not necessarily talking about the love that he just talked about, but more it's an end of this whole teaching that we have just heard on the Sermon on the Mount. To one of the uh, words here, this Greek word for perfect, one of the interpretations of it can actually be uh, to be complete or to be whole. And so what Jesus could be talking about is uh, about being whole, complete people. And so this view would go like this, that Jesus is summarizing his whole teaching by saying to his would-be disciples, you must be complete as your heavenly Father is complete. See, the Pharisees thought it was enough to just not murder somebody. But Jesus shows that God cares about your heart. And whether you're angry in your heart. So the Pharisees thought it was enough if they just didn't commit adultery. Jesus says, your thoughts and desires will be judged. They, they thought, as long as you give the proper paperwork that you can divorce, Jesus teaches that God hates divorce. You think, he'd say to the Pharisees, as long as you use the correct object to swear by that your promises are upright, Jesus says, you shouldn't need to promise at all. You think, he would say to the Pharisees, that as long as you retaliate proportionately, that you are special in God's sight, God doesn't want you to retaliate at all. You think that as long as you love your neighbor, whom you've defined to be a very, very small group of people who just happen to be your friends, that God is pleased with you, God wants you to love Everybody, you must be complete, wholehearted people as your heavenly Father is. So how do we do this? See, one of the reasons I didn't say this other view that I was going to say is because I think we do people a disservice when we jump to grace too quickly. 
See, often as Christians, we're so opposed to a pharisaical view of righteousness that often our call to holiness looks a little like this. God demands our whole lives lived out for him in every aspect of our lives. But you can't do that. So isn't it great that God sent Jesus to die to pay that requirement? The problem when we jump too quickly to grace is that we neuter the word. Yes, there is grace. Yes, there is forgiveness. And yes, God does call us to perfection, to completion. How can we do this? It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. God has given us the same power, he says in his word, that raised Christ from the dead at work within us. We have the Holy Spirit to empower us to change, to empower us to live out Jesus' words. Jesus isn't just setting a bar that's impossible to reach in an effort to show us our need for a Savior, as if the things he just taught in the Sermon on the Mount don't really matter. God really wants us to, expects us to, live the way he has called us to live, and he has given us the power to do it. In Christ, and only in Christ, when we put our faith in Christ, like I mentioned earlier, the Bible says we're filled with the Holy Spirit. He gives us the power to remember and live out all that Jesus has taught. It is only in his power that we can live this out. It's only in his power that we can obey. But we are called to obey. So as we close, I want to look at some practical application of how, how can we put this to practice in our life? And I think it's, it's helpful to ask this question. Who are your enemies? Now, I'm sure most of us don't have people who are trying to kill us. If you do, you should contact the authorities. And hopefully nobody here is trying to kill anybody. If you are, you need to not do that. We'll contact the authorities. I guess that. Uh, but I was thinking about this, and one example that I thought of that is really, it's silly, um, but I played high school football. And when you, I'm sure this happens with any, any sport, but when we would play another team, I mean, you, you literally had like this hatred for somebody on the other team. I remember when, you know, a quarterback, it was usually the quarterback, but when a quarterback would get hurt, uh, it was our coach who made us take a knee because we didn't want to take a knee. We wanted to jump up and cheer like, yeah, the quarterback got hurt. So picture this, even if you've never played, I'm sure you can understand this and I'm sure you've experienced this in some way. So if you're a Cowboys fan, so picture this, and it might be hard for some of you, but picture being a Cowboys fan and you have a jersey or a hat on and you're at the grocery store and you're walking down the aisle and, and around the corner you see and bump into an Eagles fan who's wearing a 2018 Super Bowl champs hat. I mean, some of you are actually like feeling your blood boil right now, right? Now imagine that fan making fun of you and your team and saying something like, when's the last time you guys won a Super Bowl? This year, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so you can imagine that, right? Imagine this interaction. Now imagine you leave the grocery store, and as you're pulling out of the parking lot and onto the main road, you see that very same Eagles fan broken down on the side of the road. Now, what's our natural reaction? 
natural reaction is probably slow down and roll down the window, lean out the window and say something like, well, at least I have a car that works, <laughs> and drive off into the sunset. But if you apply Jesus' teaching, I think you stop. You roll down your window and you see if there's anything you can do to help. What about at work? Maybe you have a coworker who's competing with you for the same promotion. How do you love them? Maybe it's a tough competitor of yours and you bump into them out in the field or in the grocery store. Do you walk up to them and greet them? Or do you put your head down and pretend not to see them or to know that they exist? I tried this this morning in an effort to apply this message. Um, I'm in sales. Uh, and, and so I, I prayed this morning for one of my toughest competitors. And I will tell you, that was hard to do. I didn't pray for his sales success. <laughs> but I know that his wife is pregnant and they're expecting a baby in January. And so I prayed for the baby's health. I prayed for God to bless their family. And I felt like this, like, I shouldn't be praying this. Um, and I really felt like the Lord worked in my heart to, to generate a love for that person. So how are we doing in this area as a church? Are we greeting our friends on Sunday morning only and walking right past that person who's kind of difficult to talk to? Or walking past people with Eagles jerseys? The Pharisees didn't love those who were different than them, even fellow Jews. Do you have someone who's different from you? Someone whom you struggle to love? This happens to us all the time. We're raised in a culture where you get what you deserve. If you work hard and sacrifice, you can have a good life. And we can even think this in the church. We can think if you live the way that God's called you to live, he's going to bless you. You're going to prosper financially. You're going to have great health. So we struggle when we see the drug addict who's poor or the sexually promiscuous person who has estranged relationships, or fill in the blank. When we see them, we often have a feeling, well, you're getting what you deserve, instead of love. Think about the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. The priest and the Levite pass right by the bloodied man on the side of the road, and my guess is there's a sense of, well, serves you right for traveling alone. Jesus says our righteousness needs to be greater than the Pharisees, and I believe it's especially situations like this that he has in mind. Isn't this how we hate people? Generally, this is how we hate people, like the Pharisees who would see their enemy in a pit and not help him out, or the priest who just passes by on the other side of the road. We see the person whom we believe has lived their life wrong or has done us wrong or somebody that we love wrong and we leave them in their need. One of the worst, and I fear most common ways we do this, is by not sharing the gospel with those around us who don't know Christ. Penn Jillette from the famous magic pair, Penn and Teller, is quoted by saying that he thinks Christians who don't proselytize must hate people. He says, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that. When you look at somebody, maybe an ex or a coworker or someone from a different political party or different religion or different ethnicity, someone who's wronged you, 
someone who has wronged someone you love and your thoughts are about all the wrong that they have done and what they deserve, stop. And ask for the Spirit's power to see that person as a created human just like you. To see them as one whom God loves. To see yourself and to think about what you really deserve from God. We don't deserve God's love. We deserve his wrath. But he has loved us. And so when we think about what we deserve from God and what we receive from God, and we let the power work in us, we can love them with the same love that the Lord has given us. As we close, I want to close with a story that I think illustrates this well. It says, how many Anabaptists died during the 16th century persecution in Europe? No one knows for sure. What is certain is that at least 1,500 were cruelly tortured and killed. For the most part, these were peaceful citizens who did not believe in war and who became the forerunners of today's Mennonites and Amish. The main complaint of the authorities against them was that they did not believe infant baptism had any value. They chose to be rebaptized as willing adults. Although no other charges were proven against them, they were sentenced to death. For the men, death was usually by fire. For women, it was by drowning. Many Anabaptists uh, proved to be so bold, check this out, in their final testimony for Christ, that authorities began to clamp their tongues before leading them out to their execution so they could not speak up and win more converts. One of those Anabaptists was Dirk Wilhelm. Dirk was captured and imprisoned in his home of Aspirin in the Netherlands. Knowing that his fate would be death if he remained imprisoned, Dirk made a rope of strips of cloth and slid down it over the prison wall. A guard, seeing him escape, chased him. Frost had covered a nearby pond with a thin layer of ice. Dirk risked a dash across it but made it safely. As Dirk made his escape, he heard the struggling cries for help of his pursuer who had fallen through the thin ice. Dirk believed the scripture that a man should love his enemies. He immediately turned back and pulled the floundering man from the frigid water. In gratitude for his life, the man would have let Dirk escape, but a chief magistrate standing on the shore sternly ordered him to arrest Dirk and bring him back reminding him of the oath that he had sworn as an officer of the peace. Dirk was later burned at the stake and all his property seized. I would encourage you to make this easier to put into practice, to just think of one person. Who's one person you have a hard time loving? Who is one person that would fit into that enemy category for you? Ask the Lord to help you show love to that person this week. And we can show love, first of all, Jesus says, by praying for those who persecute you so you can pray for them. You can love them with action. You can even greet them. So maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's a greeting. Maybe it's just praying for somebody this week. But think of that one person that you can work on this week. The Pharisees had it wrong. They thought God only wanted them to love a small, special group of people. 
But Jesus explains that what God wants, what he has always wanted, is a group of people that will show the world what God is like, to love everyone the way that God does, and in so doing, to glorify God. We are called, like the story of Dirk Wilhelm, to love others, even our enemies, forsaking all else, even our own lives, for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, to live the way that he's called us to live, to be the people that he has called us to be in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.